This, this is the Second Second Story Podcast. Welcome back, Second Storians. Today on the program is Camille Acker, a Second Story regular. Camille is our writer and social justice advocate. She's been a resident at the Millay Colony for the Arts, the Norman Mailer Writers Colony, and Callaloo Writers Workshop. She's co-edited Dismantle, an anthology from the Vona Voices Workshop, with work by writers of color, and she's also a co-founder of the website The Spencer's Union. Today's story takes us on a road trip through the heart of the young artist via D.C., New York, and New Mexico. Recorded live on October 9th, 2015 at Pub 626, let's put it in drive with Camille Acker. I've spent most of my life in the passenger seat. The passenger seats of my parents' cars, my friends' cars, my boyfriend's cars. I didn't learn to drive until I was 31. When and where I went was determined by them. At 16, I had fears about navigating roads, but more, I wanted to avoid the maniacal teaching style of my father. You're too close to this side, move over, Camille, you're too close. Go around this guy, go around this guy. What did I say, go around? Don't hit your brakes. Okay, don't hit your brakes. I said don't hit your brakes. The already critical eye of my father was piercing when he was not in the driver's seat. And as a teenager, I had made it a rule of my life to hide. I grew up in Washington, D.C. and went to one of the city's best public schools on the ritzier side of town. My classmates were middle and upper middle class kids with parents who were white collar government workers or lawyers. The dream was to get a job as stable and lucrative as their parents in the Department of Defense or on K Street and drive out to their homes in the suburbs. I could have lived that life, but I always felt different. I wanted out, but unlike some teenagers who sought freedom in the driver's seat of a car, I thought more about creative freedom. I wanted to be a writer, a female James Baldwin, righteously angry, radical, and a chain smoker living in Paris. (laughs) I didn't make it to Paris, but I did make it to the capital of disaffected creatives in this country, New York. Living in Brooklyn, I was still without a license and unashamed of it. New Yorkers were legendary for their inability to drive. Insurance was expensive, tolls were exorbitant, and parking a huge hassle. In New York, I wasn't in the driver's seat or the passenger seat. More often than not in a car, I was in the back seat of a cab. The art of getting a cab, which corner to stand on, how aggressive to be with your hand motions, cab lights that were on or off, all of it were skills I began to hone. And there were other skills. One night, my sister and roommate Juliet and I had taken our visiting cousin out for the night. The shy and unsure teenage version of me had been replaced by a young woman who could talk to anyone and loved a good party. Being seen had been my greatest fear as a teenager, but in New York, that fear slipped away. That night, we headed to one of our favorite lounges. Inside, cozy banquettes lined the back walls. The bar in front was populated by bartenders we knew by name. Their muscled arms shook up Moscow mules and squeezed lime into Juliet's standard gin and tonic. 
before the night was through, the space would be filled with stylish, witty New Yorkers, multi-hued and multifaceted. But first, we had to get there, and the cab driver had gone up Broadway. We told you not to take Broadway, so why are we on Broadway? It's the best route. No, it's not, Juliet said. We told you to take 8th and go across town. This is the best way. If you think that, then you don't know the city. I know the city. No, you don't. What idiot takes Broadway? We argued back and forth for blocks. Let us out here, I finally yelled. We got out of the cab and walked the rest of the way to our destination. Our cousin was stunned into laughter. That poor guy. But this was the way you had to be in New York, to believe you could have whatever you wanted, the way you wanted, even a cab ride. New York liked it that way. The city made you want things. And there, it felt like you could have all of it. The $1,000 handbag on the arm of the woman sitting next to me on the train, the bottle service at the already exclusive club, the view of the city from the co-op of an investment banker friend. It was a lifestyle. Few were rich, but anyone could send out laundry to be washed and folded by someone else or get their hair washed and set for less than $20. It was easy to pretend that I made more than the pennies I did as an assistant in book publishing. I spent two to $300 a weekend and couldn't have imagined it being any different. Craving the cocktails or the night out in the town was easier than letting myself think about what I truly wanted, a life of a writer. I hoarded my writerly dreams, reluctant to share them with others. People asked what I did, and I said I worked in book publishing. Juliet said, no, you're a writer. But I was no more a writer then, at 26, than I was at 16. Only one in my dreams, in those visions of myself where I saved the world with my wordsmithing. The vision was growing dim. I was talking about writing, I was thinking about writing, but I was hardly ever actually writing. My social life substituted for a creative life. That was where I put all my energy, avoiding the fear of living the life I wanted and the fear of never living the life I wanted. I threw money at the problem, more clothes, more cocktails, and stayed for as long as I could out of the driver's seat. Four years passed living in New York. I'd quit my job in book publishing and moved on to retail and tutoring to give me time to write. It would be my last year in New York. I started to learn to drive again. My driving instructor was in his 40s, a nice guy who'd grown up in New York, warm with an acerbic sense of humor. You can parallel park the shit out of this space, but they won't give you a license if you can't drive straight. I took a lesson every Monday, my first day off after working the weekend shift at a furniture store. New Mexico? I know. I'd gotten the same reaction from others in the months since getting into one of my top choices for grad school. On a visit, my first view of the Southwest had been light-filled, multicolored dots that rose out of a deeply darkened landscape. From my window seat on the plane, the world twinkled, and I knew that this is where I would become a writer. How are you getting there? Driving. You're gonna drive? <laughs> no, my dad. Good, because you're not ready for the highway yet. Might be easier there, though. Now try this turn again without slamming on your brakes halfway through. 
45 minutes away from El Paso, Texas, Las Cruces, with just 80,000 inhabitants, is the second largest city in New Mexico. I was there with my writing and almost nothing else. Few friends, sporadic socializing, cheap beer, and about three restaurants that were any good. I had left New York far behind. In New Mexico, there were mountains and cactus and nearly no sidewalks. In that first year, I knew the constant grit of sand in my teeth and in every pair of shoes I wore. I know that the sharp, icy prickle of winter in Chicago isn't far from the cuts of a shower of sand on your legs in a desert storm. I taught first and second year undergraduates in Las Cruces who would tell me they had missed class because the one car for their entire family had broken down and the two-hour trek could not be negotiated any other way. There was no Amtrak to Hondo, New Mexico, no megabus stopped through Truth for Consequences. We were all stuck without cars. The buses only ran from 8 a.m. to 7 p.m. and only every half an hour. I rode it a handful of times. It was cheap, only a dollar. The bus had been for poor folks in D.C. and in New York and in New Mexico, in one of the poorest counties in the entire country. Riding the bus was for the poorest of the poor. Once again, I relied on the passenger seats of others, but now I was a more powerful version of myself. I walked almost everywhere, as many places as I could, and sometimes declined invitations if I couldn't get there on my own. But there was little to see walking in Las Cruces. The mountains that had captivated when I first arrived had lost their luster. One night, I walked to the nearby Whataburger and stopped at Celebrate, one of a chain liquor store in town. Celebrate shelves never disappointed. I grabbed a bottle of silver tequila, my go-to alcohol from the four months I'd been living there. The guy at the counter, made of pudge and disinterest, asked for my ID. I was 30, but I always got carded. He scanned the card, probably looking for the birth date in a different place than New Mexico and Texas licenses. New York, he asked. I nodded and looked at the credit card reader, waiting for my total to come up. My junior Whataburger with jalapenos wasn't getting any warmer. He stared at the card longer and then turned his attention back to me. What are you doing here? That's a great question. The price of the tequila finally popped up. I paid and left the store clerk to ponder the same question I'd begun to wonder with regularity. I got back to my apartment and fixed a cocktail. The semester had been hard. Workshops had left me unsure if I would ever be a great writer, my long-distance boyfriend had broken up with me, and my greatest nighttime thrill was a burger and tequila. The glamour of cabs and downtown lounges was nowhere to be found. If I were to survive this place, something had to change. That summer after my first year, I was back in DC and determined. I have to learn to drive, I told my mom. I need you to teach me. Your father drives more. He should teach you. Mom, please, I can't. <laughs> my mother's relationship with driving was complex, too. My grandfather had been a short-order cook, and the bills for a family of seven never allowed for the purchase of a car. When she and my father began dating, she relied on the passenger seat of his car, much as I'd relied on the passenger seats of my boyfriend's. 
One night after they were married, when my father had been pulled over for no other offense than blackness. She had yelled out to the white police officer when told that she should drive the car to the station where my father would be held for the night that she couldn't drive. She had to wait for another police officer to come back to drive her to the station. My sister, just a baby, cried in her arms. My brother asked incessantly from the back seat, where are they taking daddy? Okay, I'll teach you. We'll start tomorrow. In New Mexico that fall, I finally got my license. In my last year, I learned to love the Southwest, to love the person I was there, distinct from the 16-year-old, distinct from the 26-year-old. In my Volkswagen Golf, Gigi, as I had named her, I opened up the sunroof and put on music. The speed limit on New Mexico highways was 80, but everyone went 90, and no one stopped you unless you went 100. You needed sunglasses if you rode east to El Paso, the rays blinding without cover of skyscrapers. At night, high beams were essential, the New Mexico sky impenetrable without them. I'd never known the moon to be that close, but even its light was no match for the desert. The silence was just as unbreakable. I learned to write in that deep quiet, realized that I had never known that before. D.C. could get down to a hush, but New York was rife with noise at any hour. I had loved it when I was there. The parties, the conversation, the clink of glasses, the clack of the train. But all of it had drowned out my creative impulses. It had been a place to gather my ideas, to become who I had always wanted to be, but it was not where I would live as that person. Still, I traveled back often, hungry for the familiar. But on the highway back to New Mexico after a trip east, I was glad to see the desert, glad for the mountains and the voluminous sky. In New Mexico, the mountains and the sky were the only things to overwhelm you. But out from the Oregon mountains, something else tried to. Tumbleweed the size of my Volkswagen Golf. I had seen small collections of the plant before, taken away from its roots, moved by the wind to help plant its seeds, to be able to create. I veered into the lanes heading east and sped up back into the lanes heading west. In my rear view, the tumbleweed rolled on unabated, and Gigi and I kept heading towards the lowering glitter of the sun. You can find us at Second Story. That's 2ndstory.com. Don't forget to rate us and leave a comment on iTunes. Second Story is supported in part by the Chicago Community Trust, the MacArthur Funds for Arts and Culture at the Richard H. Treehouse Foundation, the Gaylord and Dorothy Donnelly Foundation, a city arts grant from the City of Chicago Department of Cultural Affairs and Special Events, the Arts and Business Council of Chicago, 
the Arts Work Fund for Organizational Development, and many generous individuals like you. I'm Nick Kawahara. And this is the Second, Second Story Podcast.